This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. This week's episode is with Greg McCoy, who is a member of the Front Royal Grotto. A grotto means a caving club. And um, I've kind of joined that caving club, and he's one of the members on it. So I thought it would be interesting to start having some of the cavers on the podcast because there's a whole variety of absolutely fascinating people that are in this club. Um, There are geologists. There's a um, wild canine biologist with the Smithsonian who studies um, coyotes and wild dogs in the jungles of Thailand and wild dogs in South America. I really want to have her on, on an episode to hear all about that. There's a, um, guy who, um, engraves tombstones, just a whole assortment of really fascinating people. So I'm hoping to have a bunch of them on for different aspects of what caving is like. And while I really look forward to talking about kind of the symbolism of caving and the symbolism of of the cave experience and, you know, kind of the womb of the earth, um, which is how I felt. And there's a ritualistic element. I know in in some ancient cultures, the cave was used um, as a rite of passage for young adults to kind of have a meditative experience, a rebirth experience. And I have felt that, but that didn't quite feel like um, the appropriate subject matter to get into for this episode. This episode with Greg is much more of an educational episode, kind of an introduction to different aspects of caving, which I hope you'll find exciting, um, such as things that have been found in caves, bones and um, from bones to relics, um, and just some of the excitement of caving, vertical caving, horizontal caving, what you can expect um, in a cave, some of the adventure elements. So that's kind of more what we'll talk about today, as well as the bats and animals and all things caving. Now, Greg tells us about one of his caving highlights, and it's a vertical cave, which means you're descending into a pit, and you need, you must Google Ellison Cave. E-L-L-I-S-O-N cave. Because you need to see a picture of this pit that Greg is talking about. Because it is otherworldly. And when I started getting into caving with this group, to me, it was as if I were in outer space. As if you're an astronaut. And, you know, you're wearing headlamps and kind of like a suit. And you're walking in darkness and through kind of an alien landscape with water and with boulders and mud and darkness. 
And I can't help but feel as though when I cave that I'm in the film Alien or as if I'm in a novel by Arthur C. Clarke. And when you see a picture of Ellison Cave that Greg talks about, it made me think of this Arthur C. Clarke who was considered a hard science fiction writer. And the hard means it was based in science. He co-wrote 2001 Space Odyssey with Stanley Kubrick, one of the best movies ever made. And he has a book called Rendezvous with Rama. And I, I, I'm trying to remember it because I haven't read it in about maybe 12 years. But astronauts come in contact with this basically abandoned ship. And the ship is a cathedral in size. It's immense, like football fields and football fields. And when I see a picture of Ellison Cave, I just have the feeling of what Arthur C. Clarke was describing, just these immense, immense, dark tunnels. So give that a look. Um, later on in the in the podcast, Greg talks a little bit about um, cave diving, where you're doing it with scuba gear. He hasn't actually done it, but he knows a lot about it, and he has a friend, well, he has a, uh, well, he has a friend who um, died doing it. So it's interesting to hear a little bit about what scuba diving is like. And if you want to see some visuals, I highly recommend checking out on, it's been uploaded to YouTube. It's called Extreme Cave Diving Documentary History TV. If you put that in the search, is a fantastic um, one-hour documentary that shows you what cave diving is like. I mean, again, it's like an alien planet. I mean, some of the beauty of these places. Oh, we got some chimes going on in the background. Uh, it's like an alien planet. Some of the stuff um, with the the optical illusions in the water, unbelievable. The formations, the danger element. Uh, it's uh, um, finding bones and ancient animals um, ancient bones of animals down in these caves. All of that stuff is so fascinating to me. It's It's got kind of an Indiana Jones level of adventure. So I highly recommend that documentary. One of the most interesting elements to this podcast to me is that Greg um, comes from a, a family lineage of coal miners, his father and his grandfather. And while he wanted to escape the the you know, life of a coal miner, he's been in, in the dark, in the underworld his whole life, both through caving for recreation and enjoyment and for adventure, and also through his work, uh, working in mines while in, as an engineer. So I've, I found that extremely interesting that he found his own way back underground. And he tells us a little bit about being in some of the mines and that brought up for me, you know, learning a little bit about folklore, about my region and about Appalachia, that the coal mining is a big element of it. And if you listen to the most popular episode of this podcast, it was the Halloween episode about Appalachian witch lore. And in that, our guest, who was amazing, Tyler Chadwell English, he's a folklorist in West Virginia, specializing in witch lore. And he mentored under Judy Byers, and Judy Byers um, mentored under Ruth Ann Music, who is a famous West Virginia folklorist. 
who compiled all sorts of stories from, you know, the Appalachian landscape. And there's just a whole series of stories about the coal mines. And I mentioned in this episode um, a particular story called Big John about the mines. And I wanted to read this one tale. And this is from Ruth Ann Music's book, The Telltale Lilac Bush and Other West Virginia Ghost Tales. So this was a book that was referenced by Tyler on the Halloween episode of the podcast, Big John's Ghost. My grandfather was a coal miner all his life. He had started to work in the coal mines of Wales when he was only 11 years old. He told me many of his experiences in the mines, some of which I found quite hard to believe. One story I remember very well was about a big Russian coal miner and an accident which took place when the Grant Town Mine was just getting its start. Grandfather said they called this man Big John because he was such a huge man. Big John loved to work and he loved to talk while he worked. Grandfather worked with Big John all day. John planted the charges to blow the coal out and Grandfather fixed the plunger. One day, John was planting the dynamite in a vein of coal, and Grandfather was around the corner, fixing the plunger that detonated the charge. All of a sudden, he heard an explosion and a terrible scream. He ran around the corner to find Big John lying on the ground, with his head completely blown off. A stick of dynamite had accidentally gone off. It was a terrible shock to Grandfather, for he and John had become close friends while they worked together. It seemed as if he could still hear John talking while they were going down in the cage and while they worked. Now he was gone. One foggy morning, about a month after the accident, Grandfather was going down in the cage by himself. All of a sudden, he felt as if he were not alone. He slowly turned around. There before his eyes stood Big John, holding his head on his arm. The head smiled and spoke to Grandfather, just as it used to when it was on Big John's shoulders. Grandfather shut his eyes and kept them shut until the cage hit the bottom. When he opened them, Big John was gone. To this day, Grandfather will get a funny look in his eyes when he tells this story. He will swear that he actually saw Big John. Who am I to doubt his word? Absolutely love folklore. And I have to remind myself, moving forward with this podcast, to reach out to more and more folklorists. All right, so let's get into this podcast with Greg, and I hope you find caving exciting. And if you're interested in um, going out on a caving excursion, the way to do that is you go to the link in this um, in the show notes. It will link you to the National Speleological Society, and through the link, you can click where you live, which state you live in, and it will show you all of the regional grottos. Again, that means a caving club. And you can email one of those caving clubs and tell them you're interested in caving. Everything has kind of been suspended during COVID, but you could kind of start entering the, the caving community and hearing what it's all about. And um, as, you know, whatever happens with COVID, um, there when people start going out in groups again, um, you can join one of those trips. And I highly recommend it. It's been some of the most adventuresome stuff I've ever done in my life. And uh, an extremely unique version of experiencing 
the nature that almost no one gets to see. Uh, I told you when I got here that I'm very interested in people who grew up in uh, with a rural lifestyle or grew up in the country. So right now we're in Flint Hill, Virginia. So basically we're at the base of the Shenandoah National Park. You, you, you can kind of see it through the woods if we were to go a few miles from here, but you didn't grow up here. You grew up in Southern Virginia? Southwestern. Southwest. So was that in Appalachia? Yes, it is. It's uh, kind of out in the, uh, near the point of Virginia. It's a couple counties away from uh, Cumberland Gap area. Okay. Okay. Very cool. So what do you, um, what was childhood like out there? We had, uh, we had a small farm. We had 65 acres. Were you in the mountains or in a valley or what? Uh, we were mostly mountainous, but we had, uh, uh, we had, uh, some fields at, that we actually planted corn and such in and hmm. so forth. Uh, you know, I grew up, uh, with, uh, six siblings. Hmm. Uh, one, one was a pair of twins and one of the twins died fairly early, but, oh, wow. uh, I'm the second in, in the siblings. So I'm next to the oldest, we, uh, we had our 65 acres and, and we, uh, farmed that, uh, along with, uh, having farm machinery, we did a lot of, of farming for other people. Hmm. In other words, putting up hay. Uh, putting up corn, plowing, you know, just general farm work. And so, you know, his life was always pretty busy there. We had uh, we had a pretty good setup. You know, I thought that every family had a workshop with a, a forge and a welder and a cutting so torch. Cool. And <laughs> so that's, you know, how I grew up. And my father was a coal miner. Wow. Uh both my grandfathers were coal miners. Wow. So I'm, so I actually, so I, I'm in, so we actually don't know each other too well. So this is going to be a pretty cool podcast. Um, you're in the caving club, which I've just kind of, um, I come, become acquainted with over the past year and a half, two years. But um, yeah, so I'm, in, I'm, my main job is I'm an illustrator and I get a lot of work from nonprofits. A lot of them are about um, medicinal plants, Appalachia. And so someone I'm going to have on the podcast coming up, they have a nonprofit to just um, called, I think it's called Keepers of the Mountains. And they're just, um, their whole thing is protecting these mountains from being, you know, where they get, uh, what's the proper term for when you kind of just raise Sprawl. the top of them? Oh, you mean raise, mountain, mountaintop removal. removal. Correct. They're, that's their whole thing. Mm -hmm. So that's so fascinating that you're, that you come from a family of coal miners and then, and you're a caver. <laughs> oh my God. Oh, it's actually, there's actually a bigger paradox than that, actually. Okay. <laughs> so our farm uh, was uh, in, in a kind of a section of Tazewell County that was known as the Sinks. Hmm. We had four cave entrances on our property. Wow. Uh, and one of the cave entrances was a 70-foot vertical pit. Oh I never went God. down that pit because I didn't have those skills. Um, so you and your siblings were just like, you just had these caves in your backyard that you could explore yes. as kids. And then, and then the adjacent properties also had caves that we would explore. Wow. And my friend from down the street, uh, Larry, and my older brother, Jay, and 
myself, would take the pony. I had a, I had a pony. We kept him tied most of the time because he would run off. But we'd take his, the pony rope, if you can imagine, and we'd go caving and we'd use the pony rope to hand over hand down small drops and stuff, which is ludicrous oh in today's terms. But uh, Okay, can you kind of describe what that is? So the pony rope, is, you mean it's just the ropes you use for horses? And- it, no, it's a, it's a long rope that we okay. used to tie the pony up to keep him from running away. Okay, what, you tie him to a tree or something? Just tie him to a tree or a fence or so you would Whatever. take those ropes, and then you would you would tie little <laughs> knots, hand knots for no, your. No, we just hand over. Hand, you would just go right just down. Just grip the rope. No, there's nothing. There's no knot no or anything. No knots or anything. Just no steps. No steps. Wow, <laughs> so just <laughs> rappelling right into a cave. Wow. Anyway, so that's, uh, you know, that's not good practice. So in okay. any way. So, so because the main theme of this podcast is going to be caving, mm-hmm. what you just said. So I started caving two years ago on my birthday, which is coming up um, March 3rd. And I wanted something to do for my birthday. So I just spontaneously came up to me. Let me try caving. I called up and found a person that takes you out caving, which I found. This is going to get a little long winded here, but. But. So one of the, there's a, so much I had to learn. So I lived in New York City for 10 years. So okay. as I've gotten into all these new things, hunting, trapping, caving, there's like a whole world that you have to learn about. And so one of the, one of, with caving, there's all these things, these lingos and what, uh, you know, how the best practice of how these things go. So there's a wonderful word called a spelunker. And I thought, I love that word, I love words. So I thought a spelunker means a caver, but it doesn't quite mean a caver. And I learned that through the caving group. A spelunker is someone who's kind of going at it like how you is in your- Originally, yes. Yes, so spelunking is kind of the freestyle way that's not quite responsible. And it's kind of just, uh, how would you describe it? I I would describe it as ignorant of the danger. Interesting, okay. Uh, And we were- Totally, you know, we were just restless kids, and and we actually went in a lot of caves, maybe you know two dozen or so caves adjacent to our property, and on our property, but uh, we didn't have any vertical skills, and we would go down as many as much as twenty foot drops, and you know climb the rope back hand over hand. So for someone listening, who we're going to have to stop would, to talk about different things. Someone listening who's never caved before, there's kind of two types of caving. There's horizontal, correct, which means it's a lot. Of, you're basically going on a horizontal plane. A lot of crawling, a lot of walking, a lot of you know squeezing on your belly. Then there's vertical, which is if any if you've done rock climbing, it's more like rappelling, right? I have I've correct. never done it. Okay, so you and your and your siblings were doing some of the rappelling stuff, which is obviously far more dangerous. And using the pony rope to do it, which <sighs> is is ludicrous. And so at the time. You know, obviously this is decades ago. What were you using for your light? Flashlights. Flashlights. Okay. Got it. Handheld flashlights. Handheld flashlights. So so <laughs> what you just stick it in your pocket? You stick when it you in go your pocket and let somebody else shine the light while you try to climb the rope. <laughs> That's fun. I used to be able to hand over hand a seven sixteenths rope for twenty feet. Mm. With you know, just hand over hand. But obviously, you know, I'm 67 years old now, so I can't, I can't do anything close to that. I don't have the hand strength anymore. You know, our farm, we put up a lot of hay. Mm. And from a small age, 
I was throwing bales of hay up on the wagon. And, uh, you know, and that builds a lot of forearm strength. So we were, we were pretty stout kids, but it was really crazy what we were doing. My buddy Larry uh, from down the street came up one day and he says, he says, there's this organization of people that go in caves. It's called the NSS, National Speleological Society. And he said, we should join. And I said, well, great, let's join. And he said, it costs five bucks. And I don't have five bucks. So I never joined. Mm. And, you know, and I continued caving off and on over the years as I got older and became an adult and, you know, worked and so forth. But occasionally we'd go caving. There's a little cave called... uh, on, right on Little River Cave, and it's a nice little cave, and we would go there often because it was fun and easy, and we did several others over the years. And then I kind of got into into kayaking, and uh, after I got into kayaking, you know, I was doing rivers all over uh, Upper East Tennessee, Southwest Virginia, mm. North Carolina, and... Uh, and one day I was looking at Beaver Dam Creek in Tennessee, and it flows through uh, Backbone Rock, which is a park on Tennessee side. And there was this bunch of people there, and they had ropes strung off of the off of the rock, and and they were all going up and down rope. And I'm like, wow. Uh, I'd only ever repelled one time before that, and that was with my friend Larry Hogston who I'd went caving with a few times. And we repelled uh, nothing. We didn't ascend at all, but we would repel in, you know, on steep places. And so these people were here at Backbone Rock in Tennessee, and they were, you know, they were all over the rock. So I stopped, kayaks on my truck, and I just went over and introduced myself. And... uh, these people were from Caves region, and uh, they were having their uh, vertical section, vertical session, where they teach uh, to climb and repel, and do pickoffs and different types of gear and what a rack's for and what a figure eight's for and how they use and their pros and cons and the dangers associated, how to do belays how to do top belays, bottom belays, and so on. So I immediately just got into that group and started uh, taking their classes on vertical training. And along with that, I joined the Mountain Empire Grotto in uh, the Tri-Cities of Tennessee. Mm. Tri-Cities, what's uh, actually Bristol Kingsport Johnson City and Bristol, Virginia uh, area. And so I joined those guys and started caving with them uh, and was quite happy to be back into caving. Still kayaking mm-hmm. a lot, but I'm caving quite a bit too. So let me make this part a little clear here. So when I first started caving, I just Googled it. Like, how do I want to cave? There's no information online. And so I just Googled it and I found someone who does a lot of... Uh, rock climbing, whitewater rafting, that kind of stuff. And he took us out on a caving trip. Soon, you know, and I paid him. Soon after that, I started listening to some caving podcasts 
And I learned there's a whole cultural of how you do this and you were mentioning it. So the way to go about it is if you're interested in caving, you go to the NSS website, the National Speleological Society. You, I'm not sure, through some page, you put in where you live and it shows you the caving clubs regionally. And Correct. these are called grottos. So when you just said you joined this grotto, it's a caving club. It's a caving club. So I learned that you have to go with these caving clubs because there is a secretive element to it. You can't just go online and find out where caves are. And you, you there's definitely the danger element. You need a, there's a level of mentorship and respect and a, and just a whole subculture you kind of need to learn about. So the way you do it is you join a grotto, which is what I did. I found out there was one in my town here in Front Royal. You're part of the Front Royal Grotto. I am part of Front Royal Grotto. And that's how I met you and a handful of other people. And through the grotto, you they do you know a trip a week, every, every two weeks, et cetera. You can join trips. And that's kind of how you become initiated into the caving culture and how you get to join on pr probably some of the most adventuresome things I've ever done in my life. I mean, this is a good point for me to say, I lived in New York City for 10 years. You're not allowed to do anything. You're not allowed to go to the beach at night. So to me, I was like astonished that you're allowed to go into a cave and walk around for miles. In, I mean, to me, it was, I'm an artist. I could only see this as absolutely magical. I mean, to me, caving is like a scene in the movie Alien. Like if you feel like you're in outer space. And so, you know, we've seen underwater rivers. I mean, to me, that's astonishing. And you guys have trips where you go and see underwater waterfalls. Like, I, like to me, this is mind blowing stuff. And we'll get into that throughout the podcast. But I just felt like at that point, I needed to tell kind of how, how it works. So carry on. I'm sorry if I derailed you there, but I, think, I thought I needed to describe the whole grotto system. So like I said, I joined uh, the Mountain Empire Grotto mm -hmm. and started caving with them. And their monthly meetings were held at Bristol Caverns, which is a commercial cave. And along so, so again, here's another term we got to talk about. So the, if you've ever gone to the caves where there's all these lights and there's a sidewalk and a handrail and you, there's a gift shop, that's what you're talking about, a commercial Correct. cave. What you're into is wild caving, Correct. which is like the real deal adventure where you're carrying a bunch of headlamps. You always, one of the rules to caving is you always carry three because if one of them dies, you're, and if that happens to everybody in the group, you're shit out of luck and you're lost in a black cave. So what you're into is wild caving. So just one needed to make that. Correct. We, mm -hmm. uh, I, I like to say that cavers are afraid of the dark. Mm. Why else would you carry three sources of light? <laughs> Paranoid of darkness. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so down in Bristol Cave. And Bristol Caverns uh, is a commercial cave that is quite beautiful. And the Mountain Empire Grotto, uh, in conjunction with the Barnetts who owned it, uh, got the idea that we would put a, another entrance in so that we could accommodate handicapped people hmm. because you, they couldn't get in the cave as it was. So we went through a project, a multi-year project to do that. And uh, there was a whole section of the cave and there's a, a lot of wild cave in Bristol Caverns that most people never see. It's beautiful stuff. And... Uh, we were trying to open up part of that so that not only the public could see it, but 
handicapped individuals could see it. Mm, uh, cool. People that are, you know, uh, mobility challenged. So you had to put in ramps and stuff as opposed right. to, because normally when you go to commercial, one of the um, traits of a commercial cave is obviously you have a huge amount of stairs to get down into the ground. Usually, yes. Mm -hmm. In this case, we were trying to uh, put an entrance and a section of the cave so that it's accessible. Okay. And we worked on that for many years. And uh, the project, I never, I don't think the project ever uh, expanded as far as we wanted because we had to build a 30-foot bridge mm. and we never could get anybody to... Uh, design and certify the bridge. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, so caving with Mountain Empire was was really good. I met lots of other cavers from all around. Uh, and I eventually joined a second group, which was Powell Mountain Grotto. And Powell Mountain Grotto uh, was from a neighboring section of Virginia over in Wise County. And I caved with those guys quite a bit and uh, had lots of fun because... Lee County, Wise County, and Dixon County uh, have a lot of caves. So does Tazewell County, Washington County, Virginia. A lot of caves. Smith County has a lot of caves. Uh, and so, why? So, something I think it's important to hear about: Why is this area good for caving? What makes a good caving region? About a hundred and twenty foot thick limestone. Okay. And so uh, what's the process, right? I mean, average, let's say. I mean, obviously, there's places that are much thicker than that, but on general, uh, quite a nice layer of, of limestone. And can, how exactly, so the cave is where water has worn away the limestone? Is well, that what it is? Uh, what happens is, we, you know, we have all this vegetation around us, mm -hmm. and uh, the water and the vegetation produce a carbolic acid. Mm. And that goes into the groundwater, mm. and that groundwater then dissolves the limestone as the stream flows through. It doesn't, it doesn't quite erode it out, although that happens. It, mm. you know, that is part of the process. But uh, the carbolic acid dissolves the limestone and makes passages, drops, uh, so on. Absolutely fascinating. And so, is it all across Appalachia that we have this li this limestone rich area? Uh, the, the section of Virginia that I lived in is just off of the Cumberland Plateau. Okay. Okay, on the kind of the east side of it. And the Cumberland Plateau runs all the way down to Chattanooga and all the way west over to, say, around Nashville. And then, of course, north. And there's a huge mass of limestone in there, which what, what, means a lot of caves. And wasn't it from, like, an ancient ocean or something? Uh, yeah, that's, you know, it's obviously sedimentary and it's, you know, what, what it is, is it's all of that, uh, calcium deposit from an ancient ocean. Wow. And, you know, one of the first things that I, um, was one of the first things that was pointed out to me doing the caving is when you're down in there, the walls are covered in little seashells and little, um, fossils, fossils all over the place. And so that's all from the bottom of the sea. Yes. Fascinating. We found, we found uh, snails that were prehistoric, you know, wow. and, you know, fossils of them and fairly intact and all kinds of little creatures and so forth in the limestone in caves. Mm. We don't destroy those things or take them out. That's really, uh, that's not what you do. 
correct. A part of the philosophy of joining these grottos is you guys are kind of the stewards of the caves, the protectors of the caves. You guys do a lot of work where you clean them up and stuff like that. And you make sure people aren't breaking up the stalactites and stalagmites. Now, what actually creates the stalagmite and the stalactite? Because that's obviously, that's not the acid cutting away the limestone. That's, some, that's like a, it's being formed. So well, what's happening there? What happens is the, the water with carbolic acid picks up uh, the lime deposits hmm. and dissolves the limestone somewhere. And as it flows through, it comes out in a drip. Hmm. And that drip then brings the calcite, which is formed by the, the process. And those calcite deposits then deposit themselves and they grow hmm. as the water comes through, uh, you know, a drip. And, you, you know, it can get, you know, like a soda straw. Can describe what that is. A soda straw is a, it looks like a straw. It's calcite formation with a hollow center and the water flows down the center and then the rim of the surface tension of the water deposits at the end and it just keeps growing. And some soda straws can grow very long and, and very slender and they're very, very fragile. Yeah. And these, so what a soda straw is a type of rock formation in the caves and like you'll go into a room and there'll be a whole ceiling of them. And they're, it's absolutely whimsical. They seem to kind of have a glow to them, a sparkle to them. And like you said, you can see that they're extremely delicate. Um, talking about the formations, just because I had to learn from you guys. So is it stalagmite might reach the ceiling <laughs> and stalactite holds tight to the ceiling? Correct. Okay, so stalactite points down from the roof, stalagmite is on the ground pointing up. Got it. Okay. Um, yeah, some of the rock formations that I've seen with you guys is unbelievable. And I know um, I've gone on a trip with with um, uh, with Earl, and we went to to repair a formation that someone broke. It was a piece of the cave bacon, which is this kind of the cave bacon is this kind of uh, swirling. It kind of looks like a swirling sheet formation and it does have a translucent element extraordinarily beautiful yeah they are and very fragile mm. so are you telling about some of the caves uh, the fossils in the caves i wanted to ask like one of my first questions when i came to one of your guys cave meetings was like do you guys you know kind of like in a childish way like kind of thinking like tom the huckleberry finn tom sawyer like do you guys ever find like crazy stuff in these caves do you ever find artifacts? Do you ever find bones? Do you ever like run into a hibernating bear? Like I, that was like one of my first excited questions. And you guys kind of all looked at me like I was a, a bit of a fool for asking these things, but it's so exciting. So I've never found a hibernating bear or uh, much other than, you know, mammal wise, maybe a mouse. Mm. Uh, and, and they scurry away mm. usually. Uh, I repelled into a cave in Tazewell County called Green's Chapel. And it, it took uh, about 200 feet of rope because there was three consecutive drops with short, really short sections between them. And so we rigged a rope and repelled to the bottom. And in the cave mud at the bottom were cow hoof prints. And I said, oh, there's got to be another entrance. So we followed the hoof prints and the hoof prints went down through the cave for a ways and went up in the little grotto, and there laid the skeleton. Oh. The cow had fallen down those four drops, 
and survived and walked off only wow. to die in the in How the old do you think those cave prints? I mean, how old do you think those little hoof prints are? Could have been decades or years? Oh, or? it was it was decades. There was there was no organic matter left other than bones. Wow. But it was really interesting because that's you know, Green's Chapel is not a cave that's visited often and it has this really beautiful high domes in it. They're two hundred feet high. And like when I first started looking at what you guys were doing, like when you're saying rappelling, it's not like rock climbing where the rope is against a rock wall. It's like the rope is suspended in the air and you're just moving down a black hole. Correct. It's astonishing. Lots of times. It is I mean, it's this stuff has literally been some of the most adventuresome stuff I've ever done. And I haven't even got to doing the vertical like that. But you talking about those bones that you saw, one of the coolest things I've seen with the group is we went out to a cave. I know we don't say where these things are, but I went out to a cave a few hours away and um, the leader of the group, it was Earl, pointed at the wall. And on the wall, there were a bunch of scratches in the stone. And he, he's like, these are a saber-toothed cat. These are the scratches of his ancient saber-toothed cat. And the bones were found in the 80s, right where we were standing. And they're now at the, um, the Natural History Museum in Washington, D.C., and it's just like, are you serious? The cat, the cat scratches of an ancient extinct animal on the wall? So it, it must have gotten trapped down there and, or something and was, who knows what, reaching up. Astonishing. So over in Russell County, Virginia, uh, there was a, uh, a short pit cave over there. and What does that mean, a pit cave? Uh, a vertical entrance. Okay. Uh, or an entrance where you would go in just a little bit and have a, a vertical uh, shaft that you would have to then repel down. Mm -hmm. So that repelled into this uh, small entrance, and and they found uh, a bunch of pottery. And no, they had, and they had a they found a two hundred centimeter or two hundred millimeter diameter complete pot unbroken. No. no, and it was beautifully decorated, and of course they. Uh, uh, got permission and took that out of the cave, and that is a, one of the pots that's on display downtown My in Washington D.C. God, so do you know who the people were who it belonged to? Uh, like the, the pot, which which culture built it? Uh, I don't know. Mm -hmm. It was obviously uh, a long time ago, but right. uh, I don't know who it was. Do you know why it was in the cave? Is there any reason? Well, typically uh, in that region. Of Virginia, uh, a lot of Indians used those caves as burial caves, and uh, another cave down there is called Indian Cave, and that was the only known site in Virginia that had shelf burials, and you would go into the cave not very far, maybe 150 feet, and there was these natural shelves along both sides uh, where the rock had eroded and left those shelves. And the Indians would place uh, their dead on those shelves. And so when the cavers got in there and found this, uh, these shelf burials, there were obviously bones along the shelves on My both sides. My God, that is some Indiana Jones level stuff right there. Uh, it's, you know, it's, uh, it happens and, you know, it's, you don't tamper with stuff like that. Right. Obviously, if there's significance to it, you bring in people who can actually uh, do the work properly. I mean, what, 
it's interesting meeting all you guys in the group that you guys are, there's already a handful of people in the group that are already kind of, they're, they're like scientists in the group. There's like a geologist. There's a, um, a woman who uh, is a um, wild canine uh, biologist who works with the Smithsonian Institute. There's, so I'm sure you guys already know all about the protocol of what to do if you happen upon something like that. Right, and uh, obviously preserve. Mm. Is you know that's the primary. Do what term. do you guys do? Do you call up an archaeologist or something? Uh, typically, we would just uh, go back to say the Smithsonian and then you know start finding out who would be interested in in taking a look at this. And usually, you can find somebody who's a uh, uh, who's an expert in mm. that in that area, and they'll come and and help you sort it out. Wow. Uh, when were those um, Native American skeletons found? Uh, they were back in this, the like 50s, I think, okay. when they were actually found. Okay, wow. And of course, I've been in that cave. I would love times. to go on a trip to that, just to be in there. I wonder why do you feel, do you have any feelings why the cave would be a sacred burial area? I do not. Mm. And pit caves are uh, sometimes that way too. We had uh, another cave that's probably not less than 10 miles from Indian Cave. It was We called it Logan's Deep Pit because uh, Logan was the guy's name who owned it and found it, and he asked us to come and look at it. And you rappel in about 70 feet and onto a flat floor, and then you go along the flat floor, and there's an eight-foot climb down. And at the bottom of the eight-foot climb down, you can look back underneath a little bit, and there was a whole skeleton in there, you know, a mandible with teeth in it and wow. uh, a, a femur bone and, a, you know, some hand bones uh, that were actually encrusted into the, the calcite. In other words, a flowstone was covering those. Wow. And it was a beautiful sight, by the way. And you can still go look at it? Uh, I don't know if Logan lets people in there to look sure. at it or not. Sure. But... Uh, um. Yeah, I've been, we, in one of the trips, they pointed out, I, I know I'm not supposed to talk too much about it, but they pointed out an ain't the bones of an ancient animal, which, like you said, had become melted. First of all, this is really far back in the cave. I mean, like an hour plus, we're like really squeezing to get back there. But our leader pointed out where these ancient animal bones had like, it looks like they're, they've been melted because they've, they're, they're, They've, they're kind of blended into the formations. And that's kind of what you're talking about, right? With this. Right. The calcite was covering them and, and actually uh, cementing them down. Right. And wow. pure calcite is, is, is fairly clear. Mm. Uh, it's kind of like a clear soda straw. Mm. Uh, and you could actually see the bones and tell what they were. Wow. But most of them were cemented down. Wow. Um, do you... Um did they have any idea what happened? Someone fell but down in there? Some ancient person fell into it? Uh, Logan said he believed they used it as just a burial site where they would go to the vertical entrance and... Okay. You know... A pit that you chuck them into. Just chuck them into. Chuck your dead into. Wow. I mean, for I don't know if this is getting a little too crazy for you, but for me, I definitely have felt like the, the cave is like a womb, the womb of the earth. It's like r- returning to... Infancy, returning, you're going back into the darkness of the womb. So I can see why people would have um, thought of this as, you know, we came from the blackness of our mothers and we're going to go and, you know, put the body back into the blackness of the earth mother. 
I think, I think that's very fascinating. And, uh, so there was a, there was a fella who was, uh, the, uh, NSS, uh, one of the NSS chair people. And, uh, and he was doing some studies, uh, in the Wise County area of Virginia. And there was this huge sink. Uh, Can you describe what a sink is? A sink is a depression where a cave underneath has collapsed and the surface has then concaved. Uh, and then typically the rock is then broken so that the water flows in there, sinks into the cave. Okay? So, so that's what I mean by sink. It's kind of a flooded spot. Well, it's not typically flooded. Okay. I mean, it could be, but typically the rock, it becomes fractured and the water filters through. Okay. Sinks. Got it. In other words. Got it. And uh, so uh, Don Davison is the guy's name, and he was safety and techniques chair. And he was doing some work in Wise County, Virginia. So he took uh, a quite a large quantity of... Uh, I think red Thorzine dye. Mm. And he went over there and he went down in the bottom of that sink and dug down as far as he could dig where people were throwing trash. Mm. And he poured the dye in there. Mm. And he waited about an hour and he went from house to house, that whole section, uh, and asked for a glass of water. And about a half a dozen of the homes gave him water, brought out water that was red. Wow. Which meant they were throwing the trash... In their water supply. Into their water supply. My God. And uh, then he would explain to them what he did and what they were doing to the water supply, which is a, a thought that needs to... People need to think about, you know, to protect the underground environment. Wow. Uh, so, it's not uh, just the critters that live there. We use groundwater for lots of things so are you do you mean like even i'm on well water that well water is that what you're talking could about potentially could potentially be okay. uh supplied from a cave got it okay Fascinating. or uh that obviously the water table is supplied from mm -hmm. surface water okay and the earth filters it as it goes in so in this case they were uh had a sink which was then taking water and they were actually putting trash and garbage into their into their drinking supply water. That seems to be a theme in some of the group meetings I've come to has been these cleanups where you guys will get together and you'll clean out these pits where traditionally, you know, rural people have used it kind of as their trash can. And Correct. Okay. And uh, remove that stuff like old cars or mm. uh, just overall junk or paint cans you know, some of the stuff that we're, we're uh, challenged today to put in the garbage because, you know, obviously you don't want to throw paint away mm -hmm. in the garbage and have it go in the landfill because then the same problem happens. Mm. Uh, another instance in Upper East Tennessee, uh, a fellow that was running the groundwater resource for Tennessee conservation came to me and he says, I understand you're a caver. And I said, yeah. And he says, we have an issue down here and I'd like for you to go and check out this, this uh, cave. And it was pretty near a landfill. Mm. So I went and I looked at it 
and it was more of a rubble choke uh, than actually a cave. So what is a rubble choke? Well, it's uh, uh, where you, aggregate would flow into an entrance and and clog it up. Okay. The water still goes through, but obviously uh, birds and or bats and people can't go through. Mm -hmm. So it was this rubble choke, and so we went back and reported to, to Randy about, you know, what we found. And he took about... Uh, 5,000 gallons of dye and went over there and poured it down that entrance. Hmm. And uh, then they found this dye in people's water supplies locally and as much as five miles down the strike of the mountain where it was. Wow. So obviously that water was traveling from very near that landfill all the way through five miles and, and coming out in spring. Jesus, that's so, depressing. <laughs> well, it's, it's, uh, it's a caution more than anything. And, and people need to better understand how to protect our groundwater. While we're on the topic of humans' um, footprint on caves, can we, for the, for the listener who doesn't know anything about caves, can we talk about the bats? Like, so there's, there's been, for the past few decades, there's been this whole issue with white-nose syndrome. Is that, do we believe that that's something that came, that people gave to bats? Do we, like, what exactly, can you give us just kind of, what's the problem? What happened? Well, uh, the, uh, the fungus it's of white-nose syndrome okay. uh, originated in Europe okay. and somehow migrated to the U.S. I guess that's sort of like, Brown marmorated stink bugs, but, stink bugs. Oh, <laughs> which yeah. everybody's seen. The bane of everyone's existence. Yeah, the bane here. of everyone's existence now. But the white nose syndrome then uh, causes the bats to uh, become challenged in the wintertime when they hibernate. Mm. And it actually wakes them up. Mm. And what happens with white nose syndrome is the bats wake up, they use their energy store, and they don't make it through winter, winter and then they die. Mm. So uh, it started in Pennsylvania mm. and has uh, shown itself all along the East Coast. Originally, they thought cavers were spreading the virus. I wanted to ask you that. That's, I had read that that was at least um, when this first became a crisis, that was the first thought, that cavers were spreading it, what, on their shoes or something? Shoes, on their clothes, whatever. Mud, and, carrying mud from cave to cave. And has it turned out that that's not the case? Uh or partially? They actually or? believe that most white-nose syndrome is spread bat to bat. Bat to bat. But that's not saying cavers cannot do that also. They can. Um, how serious of a problem has this been, and what's it, where is it at right now? Well, the bats are very challenged right now, and, uh, and some of the bats are more challenged than others. And we're talking about, like, dozens of species, all bats? Yes. Okay. And very few species have shown to be uh, quasi-immune to it. Okay. And uh, most of them, like the, the little pipistrels, have just more or less gone away because mm. they, weren't, they were very susceptible to mm. it. Little browns. Little browns. Uh, there's lots of uh, different species of bats, and uh, it's, been a, it's been a raging toll against them. Mm. 
Was this like 10 years ago when it really started kicking yeah, it's, off? Well, it's more like 20 years ago. 20, okay. Hmm. Yeah, so because I've just, so you guys have kind of been on pause because of COVID. You can't have groups going into caves. But for the year that I started caving with you guys, um, you know, we didn't see very many bats. You see a few here and there. So that really sucks. And actually I was shown um, by one of the group leaders there are a few bats, it was in West, or sorry, a few caves over in West Virginia where the, I believe it's, um, I don't know which department it is, but they actually put huge bars in front of the cave because they don't want anyone to go there. And it's like a protected site for certain species of bats. I think the really endangered ones, right? Correct. One of the things that uh, I got into early on in caving was uh, the whole conservation effort. Okay. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Well, first off, I'd like to say there's a difference in conservation and preservation. Right. Conservation is the prudent use of, and preservation is, uh, you know, no use of. Which you hear about in hunting all the time. Yes, which you hear about in hunting all the time. Preservation is don't touch, really, right? Mm -hmm. No human activity. Conservation is how to manage with humans interacting. Correct. And caves are the same way. Okay. So, uh, Several of the people who uh, were doing the vertical training I got into were part of a group called CCI, Cave Conservation International. And uh, those people designed bat-friendly gates Hmm. so that they could gate a cave and make it bat-friendly where the bat can fly in and out without uh, being affected by the gate. And then humans can, of course, open the, the... the door in the gate and go in if they need to for bat counts or or for sport caving or for uh, science. Maybe maybe you have somebody who's studying, uh, you know, some of the little critters mm. like isopods or whatever, and you want to let them in. So you obviously put a gate in, a door in the gate. Now, I helped gate several caves, uh, lots of caves over the years. So uh, that's just to keep out the general public or... It's, it's the the people who would do damage. Okay. And if you wanted to go in a cave and it was gated, what you'd need to do is just get a hold of the local grotto, find out who's in charge of the management plan for the cave, and get on one of the the visits to the cave with mm-hmm. you know with whoever's in control of the management plan. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know I helped gate Raps Cave, which is uh, which has prehistoric paintings no just way. inside the entrance. No way. In West Virginia, yeah. No way. And uh, one of the individuals who I met early on with the vertical practice uh, actually was called in, and he actually gated Schoolhouse Cave in Germany Valley. Hmm. So I worked with those guys for many years. We, we did caves all over. We actually did some... Uh, bat hibernaculum caves. We did uh, uh, a shelter cave on Grandfather Mountain in North Carolina that was used as a transitory stop for bats. Hmm. And they were people were hiking there a lot, so they would, you know, go into this cave and disturb the bats. So we hmm. ended up going about 150 feet underground and and put a gate in. Okay. Uh, so just trying to help the help the bats out with a little bit of too many, too much human because I guess they get can be easily disturbed by too much human activity. Correct, and People, they act different in the summer and they act different in the winter. You know, a hibernaculum 
uh, you know, they'll is a whole different problem than say a maternity colony somewhere. And you're not, like, cause I remember you're not really supposed to shine your flashlight at them, stuff like that, right? They're very sensitive. Very yes. sensitive. Okay. And do you know how you know how to tell a bat biologist from everybody else? Oh. He's the first guy to reach up and pull one off the wall and start handling it. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> because he really needs uh, to study, you know, the arms and the legs and the fibers on the wings and everything else. But we typically do not touch bats. Yes, yes. And cavers just leave them alone. Uh, we don't disturb them. We try to, you know... If you come into an area that has a huge population of bats, it's best to just avoid that area. Interesting. Okay. Um, so one of the so when I go to your guys' meetings, you guys have all different types of trips. Some of them are just for fun. Some of them are these cleanups. Some of them are these like more of the conservation side. Some of them are mapping virgin caves. One of the things you guys do is you do what you just mentioned, these bat counts, which I wanted to come, but I didn't get the chance. Um, so how are the bats doing? Does it look like... Does it look like, so you go and, you, and I guess you guys sit at the entrance or something and you count how many are coming, going in and out? Typically, they will, uh, you'll go in the cave okay. and you'll find out where the bats are in the cave. Okay. And then you estimate the amount of square feet that, uh, uh, that social bats are covering. You either hmm. count individuals, hmm. like some bats are individuals and they'll just be randomly by themselves through the cave. You count those. Hmm. Okay. Uh, but then you have the social bats like grays or, or some of the other social bats, and you'd look at them and you say, okay, that covers six square feet, and we know that a square foot holds you know, like 300 bats or something. Wow, cool. And then, you know, you estimate a count that way. So how are they doing as uh, a whole? Do they, is there a comeback from White Nose? I wouldn't call it a comeback, but okay. uh, the death spiral seems to have abated itself. Mm. So we'll, you know, we'll know in the next 10 years what's going to happen. Okay. So this, it's kind of like we have the survivors and we'll see how it goes from there if they repopulate. Or they've become uh, immune. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So you just brought up a handful of awesome things. And it's hard to not, because I can just wander all over the place. It's hard for me to stay focused here. You brought up the isopods. Isopods? Yes. What is that? It's a, a little micro-sized creature that lives in, they're totally unpigmented, and you find them in caves. Uh, you know, some of them are rare, some of them are not. And, uh, you know, you go stomping through the water without mm. looking, and you're disturbing their habitat. Oh, interesting. So what other kinds of animals do we have in these caves? Aren't there these strange, like, white fish and stuff like that? Yeah, there's, you know, uh, non-pigmented fish or... Uh, are usually found in very deep caves okay. or caves with large streams that, uh, you know, where the, the fish would then just live on whatever material comes through the stream uh, and not go back outside. So... Uh, You've seen them? Yeah, I've seen whitefish, yes. Wow, cool. And uh, you can also, you know, everybody likes the uh, the cave crickets. Okay, yes. They're they're pretty awesome. Yes. <laughs> And they're everywhere. Spiders, mm -hmm. you know, lots of spiders, which, you know, are not really a big issue. I, just, I also noticed these strange funguses that grow inside the caves, these white kind of, kind of looks like mycelium type stuff. Do you know? Almost phosphorescent. I don't know what they are. But. Okay, cool. Yeah, that is interesting. Okay, there's no way we can't talk about 
cave paintings. So what was <laughs> so what was the imagery? Uh, I don't know. It's been ten years since I was over there. Okay, but uh, I don't remember. It was uh, a whole series of cave paintings on the on the walls and wraps, and it was beautiful. My God! Well, I got to join the trip to see that. I want to. I'm you know fascinated as an artist, fascinated by all of this ancient art. Um, wow. Okay, have you ever had, so a lot of people, when I show them caving, when I would take little videos, when I'd go out with the group, people would, over and over again, you hear people say, I would never do that. Like, they're, like, so claustrophobic. My girlfriend said, I would never go caving. And then I said, well, guess what? I just booked us a little caving trip that we're going for my birthday. And she was really mad for a little bit, and then she got used to it. And then she found, when we did it, and I found this too, those fears, those claustrophobic fears totally go away. That caving is incredibly calming and it's very slow if, you know, with your group and it, it's very communicative. Everyone's talking and just like, okay, we're going to go through, squeeze through this little part. It's very calm and very slow pace. And it, it, I don't, I didn't actually find, there's only one moment where I actually became extremely claustrophobic. And that was only because it was something you guys called a keyhole, which basically looks exactly like a keyhole and had to have been the size of my body or smaller. And you had to squeeze into this thing, like basically standing up, but squeeze in it in kind of a crunched position and go maybe a hundred yards or such. That was pretty freaky because that felt tight and your, your feet couldn't even touch the ground. Um, you had to kind of keep your feet off the ground and use your shoulders to kind of push through this thing. That was my first time going out with you guys. So I was like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? So some of this stuff is extreme. Have you had any like harrowing moments down there? Like I know from listening to a caving podcast, some things that can happen are like, you have to be aware of weather because if a big storm comes through, chambers can get flooded in. Like, have you had any, uh, uh, also to add to that, you've been talking about grottos and uh, how all these grottos are kind of interconnected when there is a crisis. Like I know they'll all communicate with each other because if some if the shit goes down in a cave, firefighters can't do anything about it because they don't know shit about caving. So cavers are the one, people who go and rescue other cavers. So I just want to know because it's always exciting to hear about. Have you had any any close calls, harrowing encounters down there, anything like that? Well, I uh, I've done quite a number of caver rescues, mm. and uh, so what's normally happening? People breaking, twisting an ankle, uh, breaking a leg, or I did one body recovery. A dead person uh did uh actually people get uh trapped by a, like a rock fall on their foot Jesus. or uh dislocate a shoulder and can't negotiate a, a tight spot or a canyon to get back out that sort of thing uh or break a bone and most most rescues are uh i think what we would call small party rescues where the original party or maybe just a few people would help. Uh, I've been involved in a couple where it was like hundreds of people. Uh, and you guys you kind of try to get someone on kind of like a toboggan type thing, the injured person onto like a toboggan type thing? Well, it depends on the passage, whether you would mm -hmm. use an actual basket or you might use a, basket. Uh, a skid, which is just a, a heavy piece of plastic you would fold up around them to protect them as you bring them through. Mm. But uh, it's very tough work. And, God, I can't and it's imagine. Very, it's, it's something if you're interested in doing, you really have to 
you, you have to go to uh, maybe a cave rescue orientation that's offered by uh, the region of the NCRC, which is uh, the National Cave Rescue Commission of the NSS. So you'd probably want to go to a, an OCR, uh, Orientation Cave Rescue. And, yeah, uh, I know someone in our group, he used to be an EMT and work in hospitals and stuff like that. I know he's kind of like the rescue guy for our group. That's Earl, right? Correct. And uh, extremely interesting. Even, he was even showing us how you guys use kind of like these military phones because there's no cell service down in a cave. So you, ha you know, have a military phone at the entrance of the cave that you run wire down to talk to the head rescue guy so that you guys can communicate. I mean, you might, get, you might be hours into a cave. Right? Correct. Wow. Can, can we hear the story about this, the, pulling this corpse out? Uh, I'd probably rather not talk about that really? right now. So wow. Okay. Let me talk a little bit about uh, Stomp Bottom, okay. which is a, another cave in Tazewell County. And it's about a four-mile cave now. And some Virginia Tech cavers were uh, doing a survey trip. There was three of them on the trip, uh, two guys and a girl. And one of the guys uh, was near the creek bed, and this 300-pound rock slides down slope and pins his leg. So he's stuck. He can't move because he's pinned. And the other two work and work and work, and finally they decide they have to do a call-out to get help. So they uh, send the girl out the cave, and the two guys stay, and she goes out by herself and does a call-out. Well, I end up on that call-out. And I show up, and of course, everything's kind of run, uh, I guess, by an incident command system. And they put a hasty team together, and they took their gear along, you know, which would be a medical person and a technical person and so on, and poof, and they go in the cave. Well, they pulled me aside and said, here, we need you to run phone line. So I took uh, a crew of four, and started running a phone line. And I'd run about, I don't know, maybe three-quarters mile of phone line. And the hasty team comes back out. And we're running phone line, and the guy that was in charge of the hasty team, he stops and he says, I need you to come and help me. And I'm like, okay. And I said, what's up? And he says, there's a tight spot, and none of us can get through it. And it was four of them. And I said, uh, okay, and we'll just put somebody else in charge of phone line. So I go, and Stomp Bottom had a creek, and down in the creek, you had to, it was very tight in the creek. I'm, you know, talking very tight. And you go down the creek, and there was a blade standing in the middle of the creek that nobody could get past. What's a blade? Uh, it was a, a kind of a blade of stone that came up out of the floor where the water had uh, dissolved the material on both sides of it so it was sort of a blade standing in the middle and they tried to break it but it was pretty thick and they couldn't get through didn't have tools didn't have any way of breaking it so he sent me down and said see if you can get past it so I go down and I'm able to get past it and so I get on down there half submerged right? it's in yeah, water yeah you're in water and so I go on down and and then I come to what is the real problem, which is the tight spot, because that wasn't even the tight spot. <laughs> and and it, it was in these kind of bubbles, these stone bubbles in the creek. 
and they were very tight. And so I'd get into the first one through the tightest spot, get into the first one, then I get into the second one. And I hear the stone pounding. It's going boom, 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 boom. Well, once I figured out that I was hearing my own heartbeat in this little chamber, then I was able to calm back down. So I push on through, and I'm in a low stream where you had to put your face about half in the water to go through. And uh, and I got down there. I'm by myself, and I'm probably, you know, 400 feet from anybody that's in the cave other than maybe the guys that are ahead of me. So I find a spot, and I turn around, and I go back out, and I said, look, we're going to need to get somebody else small down here to go with me and bring, you know, certain things. So we were uh, in the process. We went back out of the cave, which was quite a ways, re-geared, and was heading back, and we met the two guys coming out. And they had uh, taken something they had in their pack and had continued to dig this whole time. They had been in the cave 12 hours. And they had finally dug his foot loose. But it was pretty interesting. I never got to where the site was. Wow. And, uh, man, that's harrowing stuff. <laughs> that is harrowing stuff. So somebody that's nice and thin like that does have an advantage yes. in caving. I'm, I'm much larger now than I was. I was about 120 pounds at the time. Oh, wow, okay. Now I'm about 160. Yeah, me and my girlfriend are nice and skinny, so we're, we're good for caving. Um, wow, man, those rescue things sound harrowing. How how often do you, how often do you guys have to go do these rescue stuff? Is it is it like once every few years, or is it quite off? Well, I haven't been to one lately. Okay, so it's been several years since I was. And is it usually on a call out? Are the people who are getting hurt down there? Is it usually not people in the caving community? It's spelunkers. Uh, sometimes it's caving people. Okay, and Just you know, an I accident. mean, accidents do happen. All right. Yeah, I had one mm. where an older guy about your age maybe a little younger than you, but he, he slipped and he fell and he like hit his butt really hard on a rock. And he was like a little shaken about it. And fortunately he was able to get out of there, but he said he like really hurt his waist for like, it would hurt for weeks. And I can see how something, a quick slip like that can get, I mean, it literally sometimes it, we would, I mean, I've just done pretty beginner level stuff and you're in a cave for five hours. I know some of you guys do stuff much longer. I, I know people in the caving community, they camp, down in caves. Correct. And they stay there for days. So I can, I can see how dangers could arise. Um, have you ever had one of these flooding situations? Uh, yes, but uh, no, not, not an entrapment. Okay. An entrapment would mean that a chamber gets flooded and you no longer you can go through it? could not go through it. And that's weather related? Uh, typically is. Okay. Like a summer thunderstorm comes in? Mm-hmm. Wow, man. Um, so for me, one of the, one of the trips I did with you guys, we've actually never been caving together, but I've gone with a bunch of your friends. One of the trips, um, right at the, once you enter, there's a unbelievable Creek. There's, um, an underground Creek is what I mean. And on the wall, someone had carved like 1850 something, some old, uh, some old caver, old spelunker. And within five minutes, there was this little uh, underwater, there was a, a passage that was w filled in with water. And the way that the trip was described to us, you know, via email pr prior to going on the trip was that 
kind of what you just mentioned in your rescue, we would go in there and you would be like water up to your neck and you would kind of slowly wade through this passage. Well, it was flooded. So our group leader had gone in earlier that morning, checked it out, and he was like, well, do you guys want to do this? To me, this is one of the most crazy things I've ever done. But basically, it was flooded in. So we had to dive in, and our leaders on the other side, you dive into this murky water with your headlamp in all of your clothes. Your clothes is completely waterlogged and freezing cold, and you're like chilled, and you're diving into a flooded underground chamber waiting for your leader to grab you by the arms and pull you out the other side. It's like a bat, and then you open your eyes and it's black with all these bright shining lights in your face. It's like a baptismal like birth experience to me. But I was like, this is what you can do? Like, this is like, this is great. Like, you guys are wild. I mean, this is like, again, like I keep saying, this is like, this is like a very adventuresome stuff. I couldn't believe it. The water, though, adding the water element element to me is, that's totally extraordinary. Yeah, we'd call that uh, a sump. A sump. Okay. That and, means a flooded chamber or something? Well, uh, a passage that would then uh, have no airspace. No airspace. Got it. Now, you know, uh, a sump may be two feet long mm-hmm. or 10 feet long or 200 feet long. Mm. Uh it's a 200-foot-long one or the, maybe even the 10-foot-long one that people get hurt in. Mm. This was probably just a few feet, but the, probably you don't see the other side. So I'm just like trusting that I'm going to dive into this murky water and that I come up on the other side. It was really extraordinary and it, really exciting stuff. Um, were there any particular stories you wanted to tell? I mean, you've been telling stories, but is there a particular one that you wanted to share for this? At one point in time, uh, I got into caving with uh, uh, some friends in uh, Tennessee, Alabama, Georgia. TAG, as it's called. And it's just an acronym. And uh, TAG is an area that has a lot of pit caves, a lot of caves with pits in them, uh, in-cave pits, a lot of surface pits. And so for quite a while, I would... uh, leave on Friday after work, drive to Chattanooga, Tennessee, spend all weekend caving, and then come back late on Sunday. What the guys down in Chattanooga told me was that when everything's flooded and you can't go caving, you go to Gordonek. And Gordonek is this screaming stream, and it travels very steeply. You go in uh, the entrance, and you're at the bottom of the stream, and you're traveling upstream. And so you cave upstream and claw your way along the walls against the water for almost a mile. And then when you get to the top where, where you can't go any further, then you just throw yourself in the water and it flushes you back out. <laughs> nice wetsuit cave. Beautiful. So awesome. Awesome. Totally. Yeah, so something that I learned from you guys is that for some of these for some of these wet caves, you actually wear a wetsuit. Correct. And that would have been helpful in my situation when we did that that uh the sump. The sump because um that was the end that was literally within five minutes and then we were in the cave for hours and I was shaking, you know, so cold I couldn't bring my body temperature. I'm a thin guy, I couldn't bring my body temperature back up. So I can see when it would be really cool to do it with the wetsuit. Yeah. They help. 
And that was something, there's another thing that I learned when I started doing this with you guys with, at least in our area, that all the caves maintain this temperature around 50 degrees. Is that what it is? Whether whether super hot in the summer, super cold in the winter, the cave maintains its temperature. I like to say it's a nice warm place to go in the winter and a nice cold place to go in the summer. There you go. <laughs> Unless you go through a sump and then it's d damn freezing. <laughs> yeah, 50 degrees or 55 degrees is definitely cold if you're soaking wet. One of the other parts of the, the learning curve of caving is, which you would never think about, is going to the bathroom. Like having to realize, you know, when you go on a hike, you just pull over and you pee by a tree, but then you're like, oh, you can't just, you can't just uh, pollute this underground chamber, especially you're saying it tapped into people's waters. So the, the rules of caving is, you know, basically you pee in a bottle, bring extra water bottles and pee in them. Carry it in, carry it out. Carry it in, carry it out. So that was like, oh yeah, I would never have thought about that. Um, let's see. Is there other stuff you think you might want to bring up? I mean, I loved hearing about, you know, I love hearing about the cave animals, the bats. I love hearing about any of the archaeological finds, anything like that. I, I did a uh, through trip in Ellison's. was pretty fun. I'll talk about that a little bit. Okay. Ellison's is, uh, has two pits, uh, two big pits. One's called Fantastic, and the other one's called Incredible. And we did a through trip, and a guy named Dan Twilley led us on a through trip. And uh, we went in the incredible side and came out the fantastic side. And uh, uh, so you go to the warm up, well, you go to this first pit, it's 125 foot, to a 60, to an 80, to a 440 foot waterfall. Okay. And we took a whole crew with us to do nothing but rig. Uh, the incredible side, okay? And then four of us did the through trip. So, you know, we rig it and all, and these guys just come with us to take the ropes back out that side. And then... So it's one way? Uh, no, I mean, you can go in and out that way. But the incredible pit, the day we repelled it, was a screaming waterfall. And the water was coming off the top of my helmet so hard I couldn't see my rack in front of me. And uh, uh, for, you know, 440 foot deep and you can see absolutely nothing but the water just pounding you. And it was really fun. But you just go slow until you get to the bottom and then you kind of walk out of the pool and so forth. But uh, the guy in front of me, Dan Twilley, was on carbide lamp. So I doubt his carbide lamp was lit more than about 10 seconds once he got on rope. But <laughs> Can you describe what a carbide lamp is? Uh, you take calcium carbide and you put it in the bottom of the lamp and then you put water in the top and when it drips through it, it makes acetylene gas. It's old, like the old-time mining old time Old-time mining lamps. And this is the way cavers did it, pre-batteries uh, and stuff. Well, yes. Uh, you know, back in the... In the 30s or 40s, uh, when the NSS was born, carbide was really about the only way that you could go caving. Uh, you know, we used it for carbide lamps for coon hunting and fox chasing at night, but uh, uh, we ended up using electrics for, you know, for caving. And uh, so, you know, I like technical things. I like scuba diving. It's very technical. Mm. Uh, you know, 
I like bow hunting. That's very technical. Mm. Uh, you know, I like, you know, building things like my sawmill out here. Yes. And Have you done the, the scuba diving in caves? I'm not certified to, uh, I'm not certified to, to be a cave diver. Got it. Okay. Uh, I have gone to, uh, several North Florida sinks and, uh, scuba dived in the, uh, in the cavern pool. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I'm not certified to go in cave. Mm. To go and, into the flooded chambers and all that. Right. Because it's a uh, very dangerous. I've heard that that is literally the most dangerous sport on earth is cave diving. Uh, you only get one shot. You mess up, you die. And the cave divers like to say, cave, cave, diver, diver. What does that mean? That means that everything has to be doubled mm. or tripled. Do you think you might give, you, are, is one of your goals to cave dive? No. Are, are you scared of it? Uh, I don't think the, uh, I don't think that it's worth the risk. When I've watched videos about it, it looks as though some of the issues you enter some pristine, you know, completely flooded from floor to ceiling chamber, mm -hmm. you're scuba diving, you kick and all of the silt, a completely crystal clear room, all of the silt blacks out the entire area and you cannot see an inch in front of your goggles. And the only way that you don't die is this system where you have cable or you have a Lines. line and you stay, I think the term is you stay online. Online. That you never lose that line because that's the only way you can get out of this cave. So I lost a close friend to a cave diving accident. Wow. And uh, was that in, was that here in Florida or something? Uh, he was in Florida, but he was from Upper East Tennessee and mm -hmm. I caved with him quite a bit. Brett Potts was the guy's name and mm -hmm. he, he ended up uh, in, in a fairly deep dive uh, drowning. And uh, and I kind of at that point I thought maybe I'd I'd want to advance to a cave diver level, but then I decided I probably don't want to do that. That was the kind of okay. That was that the was message. kind of the, the the breaking point there between wanting to and I believe and it. deciding not to. I believe it. Is that you run out of your tank? Is that the issue? Well, you know the rule is that you uh, can only use one third of your air. You save two thirds to get out. Oh, interesting. And, and uh, you know, it's very technical. It's, it's way more technical than, you know, than regular diving. Regular mm. diving's technical, mm. but. Wow. Was your buddy pretty advanced in it or was he pretty new? He was. He was very advanced in it. Wow. That's kind of what I hear. That it's like, it doesn't matter how well trained you are. This is just extremely dangerous. You only get one mistake. Man, I was actually listening to a podcast last night with a guy who does cave diving. And it was interesting because he, he said that um, as terrifying and dangerous as it is, that he actually feels extremely calm in it, even when it blacks out. And that um, I just find that that theme is interesting, that what scares the majority of people, claustrophobia, um, not being able to see, not being able to breathe, things like that, that there are people who can find a Zen comfort in those kind of um, scenarios where normally you would panic. He's talking about silting out with just a hand, a hand blast or a fin blast, and then you lose all visibility. Sure. My buddy Will, 
who was actually a certified cave diver, he called that a, a decor tempered glass dive. Hmm. And the reason he called it that, he says, if you take your light and you put it to the front of your mask, the only thing that you're able to see is where it's written decor tempered glass on the inside of your mask. Oh, my God. That's the text printed on the mask? Yeah, it's text on the mask. Oh so that's what he God. calls it when you silt it out. I don't know how you wouldn't just completely panic. I guess to wrap it up, do you th so do you feel that your love of caving is kind of carrying on the, the baton of your father and your grandfather with the mining? Do you feel this connection to that? Well, you know, uh, I wanted to avoid going to work in the coal mines. Mm. Was that an opportunity for you when you were young? Oh, yeah, it would have been an opportunity. My older brother worked in the coal mines while he, while he went to college. Okay. And, uh, and my dad was uh, killed when I was like 15. In the mine? No, he wasn't oh, in the okay. mines. He, okay. was, he was coming home from the mines, but he was still on mine property. Okay. And uh, a train hit his car. Oh, my God. But at any rate, uh, I didn't want to go into mines. So I took a two-year technical school program for drafting. And I got a job at a local manufacturer who makes, of all things, mining machinery. So I worked for them for about 10 years, and then I decided I needed more skills. So I went uh, to college and registered as a special student and started taking math and science and chemistry and physics and uh and i got through all the math science physics uh chemistry and they called me and they said you can't do this you have to declare a major so then i had to declare a major and finish but it took me about uh 12 years to get through school while i worked full-time and i worked for the mining machinery company uh for you know, in the mining, mining machinery arena for roughly 46 years. Mm. Wow. So I've been underground in the U.S., Canada, Mexico, England, Thailand, Australia. Uh, so in mines. In South Africa, yeah, in mines. Mm. Wow. And like the... the is it all coal or is it other stuff? Diamonds uh, and gold? What is all this stuff? I've been in platinum mines. Mm. Uh, I've been in gold mines uh, and coal mines, phosphate, potash mines. Uh, it's, so, been, it's been interesting because I really like folklore. So learning, listening to folklore from West Virginia, a lot of it's based around the mines. A lot of ghost stories about, you know, past miners kind of... I think there's a fascinating, famous folktale from West Virginia about a bunch of guys, some accident happens, like a shaft caves in, and the ghost of an old miner leads them out. A beautiful, beautiful story. I think it's called Big John or something like that. Um, did, did your family have any issues with, I think it's called black lung? Is that, it's a... You're breathing in particles of the coal and it poisons you? Well, is that what it is? Yes. I, I have uncles that uh, worked in the mines their entire career. And, yeah, they eventually will have a, you know, black lung issue. Mm. And I've had several of my uncles die from that. Jesus. You know, most of my family were coal miners. Right. And uh, I sort of escaped that 
and was able to work in machinery, but I've been underground in the coal mines uh, all over the world, and I've seen lots of things. I've been in uh, the lowest coal mine I was ever in. There's a little place called Piney Creek. It was 23 inches from stone to stone on the floor and roof. Now, 23 inches, they were running machinery and digging coal, and it's 23 inches high. You're saying the chamber you're in is 23 inches high? The whole mine is 23 inches high. So imagine- So less than two feet. It's, it's imagine you have to scrunch your shoulders to turn over. Ah, oh, that's so creepy. You crawl on your belly all the time, and you have to crunch, scrunch your shoulders to turn over, and they're running machinery. Wow. So you have to be super careful. Wow. I've been in very tall mines. I've been in mines that were 20 feet tall, mm. and those are really dangerous. Why, because of cave-ins or something? Uh, yeah, because anything that falls is going to kill you. Mm. I was in a mine in New Mexico uh, called San Juan, and I was there with some machinery, and I was following the machines up to uh, the face where they're digging coal. And so I come up, and and I stand on the corner of the light at the last open crosscut in the continuous miner and the haulage machines are in by up in up in this uh face that they're digging and so i stand there and i wait on them to load a car and the car leaves and when the car leaves i walk across the entryway and i walked to the other side is 20 feet and this huge roof brow that was on the corner fell about two ton of material right where i was standing oh my it was God. like it was like 10 seconds after I left. Oh my God. So a chunk of the ceiling fell off. Oh yeah. Well, it's a, a brow. It was material that's left in the corner where they didn't knock it down. Oh my God. But that's wow. a, probably the closest call I ever had in mining. Yeah. Little God, God on your side there. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. Do they, do they blast? Is that how it works? Oh, well, I've been at mines where the primary means of uh, getting the coal loose is, is a drilling blast. And that's totally, it's unbelievable what it's like to stand 100 feet away from a face that's shot with dynamite. And, the, you know, it's this huge percussion wave that mm. comes through uh, the mine when, it's, when they shoot the, the shot. Mm. And it goes, and it goes, whoa, 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 no. And it's, it's, it almost sounds like a grouse, but it's, it's so intense that it just shakes everything. Wow. After the explosion? After the, uh, where wow. it's reverberating through the... Yeah, and I'm sure you mind. feel that through your body. Wow. And then, and, then, um, they, and then there's like railroad systems, right? You move the coal out on, on some tracks? Of them, some of them are on tracks. Most of them are on, now on belts. Belts, got it. Okay. Yeah, on like conveyor belts. Got it, got it. All right, well, let's wrap it up. Um, Honestly, caving is one of the most incredible things ever. If you're looking for adventure, go find your local grotto. Um, I want to join on some of these. I want to, I mean, I would love to see more of the stuff like the, those cave paintings. I would love to one day do one of these surveys. I mean, the idea of camping in a cave, that's like, I mean, just like days in, in darkness. That's a whole, and then like you said, no waste. Where are you peeing? Where are you pooing? It's just like, wow, carrying all that in and out. Pack it in, pack it out. Right. So anyways, high adventure. I appreciate talking to you. This has been very cool. <laughs>